Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast and videocast. We'll be joined today uh, by jo Dr. Joanna Leach, who's research fellow at the University of Birmingham. Um, Joanna, thanks very much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? You've had a really fascinating journey through research and, um, and where you're working now. I'd love to hear more. That's kind of you to say it's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating <laughs> to me, but I lived it. Um, so, the, so I actually um, started in an, an advertising agency, a below the line advertising agency. Um, and, and worked for a number of years doing that. So I have a little bit of a design bent to, to what I do, but I would stop very much short of me saying I was a very creative person because that just isn't true. Um, <laughs> but I moved from that, I had some transferable skills and I moved from that into some project management around a research project that had launched um, was, that was over five years on urban sustainability and the 24 hour city as it was then. And that sounded very interesting to me. And so I joined as a project manager. I didn't have any research skills at the time and worked on that for four years because it was a year in when I joined. And then one thing kind of led to another and, and cities and sustainability and livability had become uh, very much uh, in vogue, not just with research councils who were sending the funding uh, through to the universities, but also more generally speaking, it was, it was popular in policy, um, it was popular and becoming ever so more popular with people as well. So there was then a rolling series of projects that we bid for around the themes of sustainability and livability and cities and urban environments and well-being that became funded, that were funded and successful. Um, and through those, I, I moved my project manager role into more involvement with the research itself and eventually started to be be do do the research become a researcher uh, then I did my PhD uh, and that uh, did that part-time that was fabulous I had access to some really great people and resources through the projects that I've been involved with um, and and I got my PhD uh, earlier this year and <laughs> now I so now I, I'm a newly minted doctor as they say uh, but I, I've been at it a long time though it just it just takes forever it feels like it anyway uh, and that's where I am now so uh, now I'm working on um, uh, a couple of projects uh, a lot more about infrastructure and well-being though this time so so whereas we had a much more general city systems view of things um, some of the take uh, in some of the projects I'm working on now a little bit more around the infrastructures and not just the the infrastructures you might think of like energy and water uh, which you think engineers do and they do um, but also a lot of what what you might term softer um, um, systems and infrastructures the things that underpin our life like our schools and our health care and our food systems so all of those sorts of things as well okay so, I said I am I'm associating with you, obviously, with the, the PhD. Mine took forever as well. So kind of by the time I got it, I was like, oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> so yeah, so here's to you. I kind of, I'll raise a glass to you later. So <laughs> um, it's really interesting you're saying about infrastructure. I mean, so your main focus now is on making cities more sustainable. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it is. Um, we're always looking at how things are interconnected. So lots of people will say, what do you think about electric cars? And <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's a very good question. Um, but it it's how electric cars and the and the infrastructures that need to be in place for electric cars and how we use electric cars links in with other things like where we're going and why we're going there so that's like where do we work where do we have the opportunity to work where do we live where, we can, where can we afford to live and then more recently what types of living environments are suitable for our our health and our well-being and that includes our, our fiscal health if you will you know um, you can't get away from from money worries uh, or lots of it can't um, and, and just as, I suppose, a bit of a tangent, really, but I was really interested to read just a few days ago that as a counterpoint to what we are hearing, which is that city centre dwellers, people who are living in city centres in spaces that were designed where you had little personal outdoor space, but perhaps access to local parks or balconies or, or, or maybe even private parks, we're hearing about an exodus, you know, people are trying to sell up and they're trying to move somewhere where they've got control over their outdoor space because mm. the government is controlling where they can go now and we're not used to that. And so we need as much control of our own personal space as possible. But as a counterpoint to that, I was reading about co-living. Okay. So co-living is um, an, a, a building that might, you might, an analogy might be a, a dormitory. So you have personal rooms, but you have common spaces. So the kitchen area and the eating area are common spaces, entertainment areas. These are like dormitories for adults. One of them has a, a cocktail area. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's very much adult. And you think those places might become less popular during a pandemic like COVID-19, but not so. Apparently some places have really um, they've been oversubscribed, they've been really popular because people don't want to go through a pandemic alone. Mm -hmm. And this type of living provides, with some degree of control, a way of having connections to the outside world, having connections to other people, while still uh, being quite high density, to be honest. And, and high density has been the watchword of sustainability for quite a long time now, and we're having to rethink that quite seriously. Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, there's a whole psychology of it, isn't it, about people being isolated and not having human touch even. Um, so actually the co-living thing is really interesting, how they how you go about kind of social distancing in those environments. I suppose you create one big bubble and <laughs> just hope nobody moves. Obviously, this is the Journal of Biophilic Design. So kind of uh, sort of going on from that, really, about you're saying about people wanting to have like being having open spaces or having their, having control over a, over a space that would inspire them, presumably as well. And um, I mean, I'd love to hear, obviously, because I know you work with Birmingham City Council, um, and amongst others, and you've, you've done quite a lot of work with different cities. I mean, how do you think we can bring um, nature and sort of biophilic design elements or biophilia into cities? So, yeah, very good question. And I want to start by, uh, start my answer with, there's a fabulous initiative called Biophilic Cities. Okay. And if you Google Biophilic Cities, you'll come up with the Biophilic Cities initiative. And they are collecting together as part of what they do, they're collecting together lots of stories about how cities all over the world, mostly the Western world at the moment, but, but growing, a growing network started in America. Um, a growing network of cities that are making a commitment to 
being biophilic to increasing nature and the many different things that means for a city and the city scale, which is everything from the individual person up to, you know, millions of people, depending on the size of your city, um, how you can create a more natural and more connected to nature environment within cities and not just for well-being there's obvious links um, well they're obvious now they weren't so obvious 10 or 20 years ago to us but obvious links to uh, increasing our well-being by just being able to see nature uh, being able to smell fresh air being able to hear birds sing these are these are very very important to us as, as people but cities themselves aren't particularly natural things they're heavily engineered heavily uh shaped spaces and they're they're dense there's lots of one type of creature living in in quite close proximity to each other and in a small footprint and that's human beings and and thus we dominate the space with how with how we live so we can't just think about the city becoming natural and the city becoming natureful we need to think of new ways and of thinking about how we live in high dense areas to make it more synchronous yeah. um, more complementary to protecting the planet that sustains us yeah. really um, and we need to think about where we cast our boundaries so if we cast it at the political boundary of the city is that completely fair because cities pull in resources from from beyond their political boundaries often called the hinterlands but those hinterlands can be global yeah so it's quite a difficult problem to unravel in a sense it's quite a, a tricky thing to do because the impact of the city is huge uh, of any city is huge um beyond its own borders so how you think more sustainably isn't just within a very specific a very specific boundary um but that said there's loads of fantastically innovative things that are, that are going on and uh birmingham uh, which is where i i work at the university of birmingham it's where i work i haven't lived in birmingham i have to hold my hand up and say that i haven't lived there but i've traveled through it many times i've well, you know i've uh been all been kind of all over the city for, for a variety of different reasons and they've made this commitment to being biophilic they've got actually quite a lot of nature it's not known when you think birmingham you don't think oh green but actually, <laughs> it, it is if you looked at a google map you know a plan view of it you, a satellite map of it you would you would see it's really quite green it's it's reputed to have more canals more miles of canals than venice yeah. it's, it's got this fantastic canal infrastructure and the city is using that in canal infrastructure to create walkways and cycleways and access to blue spaces and access to green spaces because the, the canals link up green spaces as well to creating a safe car-free walking environment uh, across the city alongside other initiatives they have to be you know for, for use of, of green energy and green infrastructure so it doesn't have to be all concrete when you're when you're thinking about, for example, water runoff. Uh, we're starting to talk about uh, 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 permeable surfaces, so sidewalks don't have to be impermeable, where the water just streaks off them uh, and creates uh, rivers sometimes down down sidewalks and 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 roads. It can be permeable, and and water can soak through it while still being 
hard surface that we can uh, push trolleys on and, and um, uh, buggies and wheelchairs and prams and, and all these things and, and walk safely on. Um, so green infrastructure, and I'm sure you've heard the term green infrastructure before now, is something that is we're seeing more and more in cities where we're actually using uh, uh, reeds and planting and softer green spaces to absorb water um, and run off and uh, so we don't have to pipe it away um, we can actually you know water plants with it essentially is, is what we're doing um, but the green infrastructure to you know on roofs to uh, hold the heat in in the winter time and to cool it in the summertime and to provide that kind of service really basically free plus it's good for uh, the plants obviously it's good for the you know the animals and the insects and so forth and then it's good for us because we get to we get to look at it we get to breathe the, the, the better air um, and we get to see the nature yeah no i absolutely i totally agree with you i think when you when you uh, see these new builds and they put a load of concrete and asphalt and all that kind of stuff down and they put it in the driveway they kind of put their cars and they dig up their garden and they stick a load of concrete down you're like oh no um but they could actually kind of have some really creative sort of runoff as you say you know or in different ways or have a you know the sluice at the bottom would collect the water which would then you know water the trees or whatever you know when they chop the trees down and then all this water runs away it's kind of there's a benefit not just about it being you know aesthetically pleasing uh for us um yeah as you say it cleans our you know it cleans the air it cleans so many things um yeah and obviously helps prevent flooding it does i mean one of the one of the things that um always surprises me is that you, you kind of think oh it's just planting some trees tree planting is very very popular and i and i love it don't get me wrong yeah. but you think oh we'll just plant trees or oh we'll just put green roofs in or green walls there's issues around the, where we need to think about a little bit about the future we need to think well well if we plant a green wall that relies upon let's say some sort of fancy time watering uh, mechanism to, to 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 stay alive what if that breaks what if the money runs out what if we can't service it so so we always need to be thinking less complicated the simple solution still is yeah. the best you know and, and i there's nothing wrong with a vine like ivy although i know i realize it can pull apart buildings but there's nothing wrong with a green wall that is that is is a vine you know that's perfectly viable it doesn't have to be super fabulous plants and and there's obviously a push to, to native plants because they support the native wildlife whereas non-native species it's not that they're bad in and of themselves but oftentimes the, your native insects and wildlife and birds doesn't they don't know what to do with that they're not attracted to that sort of that sort of planting but there's a level of technical expertise that we, we mustn't forget and I'm always thrilled to see so um, in the Thames there was uh, an initiative to increase fish certain types of fish stocks um, and what the fish required was knowledge that they needed shallow cut back spaces mm. in the edges of the river in order to get out of the flow in order to uh, you know procreate yeah. and but simply but something new you know you had to have a knowledge of that particular fish species and, and how it lived in order to and all they did was then make these lovely little shallow areas and boom big big impact but it does require a bit of technical yeah. knowledge <laughs> knowledge isn't it yeah exactly ask the expert it's always the same isn't it always ask the expert <laughs> it is it is you know but there's lots that, you know, i don't want to put off people there's lots that that any old bob like me and you can do yeah. as well it isn't uh but it's that pairing of the you know the, the expertise with the the lay knowledge yeah that's exactly. me yeah yeah 
I mean, there's so many benefits of biophilic and biophilia uh, to us. I mean, you mentioned air quality and um, I mean, we spoke when we when we spoke before, we mentioned that you can create uh, sort of nature corridors where you can encourage communities even to to get together and to be less isolated and um, integration and things. I mean, I mean, how are you? Are you how are you seeing it? How are you seeing the benefits? Yeah, no, it's it, it, without a doubt, things like urban farming, where yeah. communities together and plant up spaces and grow fruit and vegetable because it, it's very rewarding. Flowers are very rewarding too, but, but there's something really quite lovely about growing your own carrots and then eating them. Um, and uh, when we spoke, we spoke about incredible edible Todd Morden, which yeah, is a yeah. particularly famous um, example here in the UK, uh, in, the, in the town of Todd Morden, where the, it's, a com it's a community initiative. Everyone is unpaid everyone is a volunteer it's tremendously popular but everyone who's involved is a volunteer um and any space they could get their hands on and still can get their hands on where they can grow veg and fruit they do and they they actively plant for produce window boxes roundabouts you name it they're busy doing it um but of course it snowballs uh, it's a massive teaching opportunity so uh, there's a farm the uh, kind of farming um, uh, community uh, where you know school kids go and they learn about um, what it what it takes to, to to grow crops, what it what it takes to take care of animals. You know, the, all these things are rolled in together, um, and it's it's you you know as a community you meet people who with similar interests, you you meet people with different interests, but you you meet your community, your geographically kind of co-located community. Um, but you also share something. There's something really quite fundamental about sharing food. Yeah. As a, you know, we we meal times to many communities across the world are really important to building families, building communities. If we stop, we sit, and we share food together, and it means a lot. We it means a lot to share food with people who you you've just met or who you'd like to know better. And there's, so there's a lot going on in our heads and our hearts as well as in our stomachs, I suppose. Um, yeah. But yeah, Incredible Edible Todd Morden's a really good example. It's, it's um, a model that's been reproduced in, across the UK and has, and has sprouted elsewhere, I think, in, in the world. Um, I think it's a really good cool yeah, idea. I think it's a really cool idea. And you were just saying about um, sharing food. I was thinking when I've been in Africa or in India or whatever, and you, or if you've you know been in a place where they don't speak their language, and obviously you do get that in different communities in different parts of the UK and in the West and everywhere else. I mean, any anywhere in the world, you get still get people that can't speak the language or whatever different generations. And if you can sit down and, and share like music, I suppose, but if you can share food with someone, you know, and if you've worked on it together and you've learned from them, I mean, as well, it's also that thing of Maybe they, they, you know, they, they, they plant a different type of food, you know, that you could learn from how, you know, how they nurture it. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing, I think, you know, I'm just getting people back to nature. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and, and it, 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 it also builds a sense of ownership for those spaces that actually don't have owners. There are lots of spaces in our towns and our villages and our cities where if you pointed at them and said, 
whose is that? Yeah. Be hard pressed to come up with an answer. Whose is the middle of the roundabout? Whose is that yeah. triangle between those three pathways? You know, but it creates a sense of pride and a sense of community mm -hmm. spirit about a place. Uh, the uh, near to us in um, uh, so I'm, li I'm living out in Wales, which I know doesn't sound very urban, um, but but there's a town near to us called Whitland and. Um, uh, it had uh, a mayor of Whitland uh, who I met and he when he he came into office one of the first things he did was he went round the street with a power hose which isn't terribly sustainable but he what he was doing very quickly was cleaning off the streets and then it, he noticed as he was doing it people would kind of look out their door and what are you doing so well I'm, I'm cleaning up the streets and then he'd see a potted plant go out the side the door you know, a window basket go up and suddenly people took ownership and pride of their immediate surroundings. And if you feel like someone's helping you as well in staying on top of what can feel overwhelming, I think, I think uncared for areas of places can feel completely overwhelming and dispiriting. Yeah. Not just to people who, who live or work there, but people who just pass through. And you think, how would you even begin? Well, you, you can begin small. You can begin by planting carrots. That's really nice. Yeah. I mean, are there other projects uh, where nature can be used to be to simulate well-being in cities, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of my favourite examples comes from a city I used to live in, in San Antonio in Texas. Oh, really? and They've, yeah, they've repeated it in Austin, where okay. I have visited but not lived, um, and, and other places. And so there's, a, there's a, a large bat population in Texas, and it's not the kind of bats we get in the UK. In the UK, we get small family units of bats of, of four or five. Hmm. Uh, in, in, in Texas, they do things big. They have communities of a million individuals, you know, not kidding. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Um, and so... And so there's a reasonable number of bridges uh, in the cities. And if you make the expansion joints on the bridge approximately this, this far apart, the bats will roost. Yeah. And so you have bat bridges, you have, there's one bridge, I think it's in San Antonio and they reckon there's a million bats living in it. Yeah. And at dusk, every, every day, communities of people, families come out onto the nearby parks and they watch the sunset and they watch the bats just amazing just amazing wow that sounds fantastic that must be just really completely unique to see i think i think it is because they they form this kind of you know when you see birds in a flock of birds in the sky and they they create a shape that is beyond the individuals they, they do that bats and it's it's there's a word for it, but I'm afraid it escapes me entirely. But yeah. <laughs> so that, that's one of my favorites because um, I think it was probably, my guess is, I don't know for sure, my guess is that's something that was discovered by accident. Yeah. And, and there's somebody kind of clued in that actually, if you make them this wide, the joints say no. If you make them this narrow, no, but this is just right. It's a bit like Goldilocks, isn't it? And, <laughs> and then you, you, you can really sustain a, a community of, you know, a, a significant community of, of bats mm. and um, and I think there's those sorts of opportunities are I 
actually quite inspiring. I think they're quite inspiring, you know, and then we have other fabulous, um, you know, London has its, um, uh, its tree planting policy, and I think New York did the same, so plant a million trees, um, and, and, and those again are great learning opportunities, but they're also great, I mean, for just changing the, um, the urban landscape, when you look out across it, London is uh, fabulously green, you know, when you, when you walk through London, especially uh, uh, certain parts of it around the, um, I'd say the centre, but that's a huge area too, I do realise. <laughs> but but it's, when people come and visit London, that's one of the things they notice is, 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 is the number of trees and the amount of, of wildlife. And the wildlife then adapts. And you can take a view as to whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, but um, birds sing at a slightly higher pitch because they can be heard over the sound cars and I was just reading that pigeons whose feathers trap pollution mm. uh, so they, they, you can um, you can use them as a barometer for air pollution actually um, but actually those feathers are changing they're changing so they they don't do that and and these changes are happening in a very short period of time they're happening in, in decades not in hundreds or thousands of years so they adapt, we adapt. It's, it's, it's wrong to think sometimes we think we're making everything adapt and we're not adapting, but cities make us adapt as well. We have to be adaptable to different living conditions. Um, and that's why kind of, that's why whereby I feel it really comes into play because it's in adapting with care. Every everyone, everything has to adapt, but but we want to do it with care and we want to do it with compassion and we want to do it so our well-being, the well-being of other creatures and the well-being of the planet are all preserved in some way they may not be exactly what they were but but they're preserved in some way that's really beautiful as you say it's, <laughs> it is it's really it's really beautiful how like how we adapt but it's all about the well-being of creatures ourselves and how we all you know interconnect and and live together and sustain each other I mean, in Birmingham obviously talking about sustainability I mean the Birmingham is, is a is hailed as a sustainable city um, I mean, is there a project that you that was kind of been close to your heart, or that you've worked on, or that you you would like to sort to tell us about? Yeah, so I was Birmingham's doing quite quite a lot, and I've already touched upon, I suppose, the the things I I, I would have used first to answer that question around mm. uh, adapting the canal network. Yeah. Uh, they have connected to that. They have an initiative where, or a, a, an aspiration to make the, the city centre car free. And I know that's not completely unique, but what you have to remember about Birmingham is it was it was built on the mo on the on the motor car. You, you know, the city centre had up until fairly recently what they called the concrete collar, which was a raised motorway that went round it that provided. Um, a barrier it provided a physical barrier and it provided a social and an economic barrier it was hugely expensive to put up and then hugely expensive to put down but Birmingham took it down they recognized it needed to come down and they they took it down and they rethought their, their spaces then and then of course we had financial collapse and now we've got COVID-19 and and Birmingham which used to be one of the largest city councils in Europe mm. is less than a third of its size and it's struggled in in some ways it's struggled to 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 adapt but through it all it's got an ambition to be 
uh, natureful, to be biophilic, to have high well-being, and to do that um, whilst trying to be economically successful and socially successful for, for the businesses and, and the people who use the city. And, and I suppose laid on to that is that historically Birmingham always underperforms economically. It's a tough nut to crack for Birmingham. So I kind of make it out to be <laughs> like the poor runt of the litter. Um, but but it, it's, you know, when other areas in the UK are doing well, Birmingham is always a little bit, a little bit of a, a late bloomer. And, uh, and here it's leading the way. Mm. And so I think it's for me, for Birmingham, it's, it's that ambition uh, to, to do this that I think is, is, is worth it and worth mentioning and worth, worth remembering and that, and that they're doing you know, what we would expect. They're doing cycleways, they're closing some streets, they're wanting to become car free and they're, they're selling that, they're redesigning their city centre so that it's got more places that are at a human scale that are, that are about the size of human beings in a, in a space, not about moving through quickly or, you know, um, fast and, 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 and loud motor cars. Um, it's, it's about slow, um, uh, slow, slower pace of life. It's not a slow pace of life, but it's a human pace of life. Um, and, and it reminds me, um, uh, places like San Francisco have an initiative called Slow Streets, um, where they are, make, some streets are designated slow streets and they're slowly building up a network because of course these things have to connect like you say with the green corridors they've got to go somewhere they've got to they've got to connect certain things they've got a um a point a and a point b that is useful is always helpful in in getting traction with these but can we make it so it's just people and bicycles um you know can we make it more human uh, in scale and size and speed Brilliant. It's been really interesting speaking with you because I'm getting a completely different take on biophilia because everybody talks yeah. about offices, they talk about homes, they talk about, you know, obviously everything about planting. And, and you know, obviously, I, I mean, I, I know quite a lot about biophilic design, but it is more than just bringing plants in. It's more than just bringing trees in. It's more than just bringing that. And you've, you've really touched on so many different points here. Um, I mean, just, you know, the, the bat thing, you know, I mean, you know just and and the sharing of food and there's sort of like the community aspect and it's back down to human human aspect um and our well-being and you just said the human um pace of life that's what you said wasn't it human pace of life. And I I so. about slowing. Yeah. yeah it was very good i'll have to replay it <laughs> it was really good um but um i mean kind of finally unless there's anything else that you'd like to add I, I'd, I'd really like to kind of get your take on if you could paint the world with you know the brush of biophilia <laughs> the world what would it what would it look like uh, uh, i i so you very kindly sent me this question ahead of time so i could think about it and and i love i love the question um partly because it's it's it could be answered in so many different ways and i struggled with it because it's hard to be prescriptive mm -hmm. but what then I remembered something I read in uh, in a journal fairly recently, and it was about architecture of a cancer um, established as a, a facility this in Jerusalem. Is this, oh, it's not. It's not Maggie's. It's a different one. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's yeah. a um, it's a it's a facility in Jerusalem, and it's it's designed to be reminiscent of a butterfly's wings, and it comes up and it goes out, and it's like a, a 
it looks to me like it's in wood I'll be honest I didn't I didn't focus on that part of it but and it looks inspiring and I thought when you when I reflect on that and your question I think about how important high quality spaces are inside and outside and nature is a huge part of that but it isn't the only part of that it's about the buildings it's about the street furniture it's about the services that are provided through the the physical environment it's about the spaces between things the spaces between buildings the spaces between destinations and how we travel and if they're high quality and if they're to be honest if they're beautifully designed which isn't always possible or, or feasible then collectively individually they're pleasurable but collectively they are satisfying in a way that i i think is um well something that i like to see um you know that that melding of the the, the human built and and the natureful uh environment so so for me it's about i would want everywhere to be of a high quality design i would like it to be beautifully designed um and i would like that to be inclusive i'm not talking about gentrification here uh, i'm not talking about we'll move in you know a middle to middle upper class and we'll move out a lower uh, to lower middle class um uh, that's that's not that's not what it's about everywhere should be should be beautiful to the eyes of the beholders no matter how different they are really Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.